Um, I'm speaking to you from the West Coast in San Francisco. So it is morning here. We have a, a little bit overcast day. And um, I just woke up with my cup of coffee. Very nice. Um, before I start, I just want to say I really appreciate being with you. I'm glad to see you again. I miss being in New York. It's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And um, my son is there. So I think sometime next year when COVID is a little bit less um, virulent, I'll come back and visit. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if you guys have heard on the news, but um, Thich Nhat Hanh recently passed away. And uh, it brought up it brought up uh, something that I've been working with anyway for a while now because I am in a couple of months, I'm going to be 78. And so death is in some way, you know, it's right around the corner. I can't any longer ignore that this life of um, tasting coffee and smelling and hearing and breathing is um, going to be over at some point closer to me than many others now at this point. <laughs> yeah. At my age, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. The truth, the deep truth that everything changes is the nature of our life. A long time ago, I remember being with Suzuki Roshi and a student asked him, after a lecture, uh, the student said, you know, I don't really understand pretty much anything that you're saying. Could you kind of summarize your teaching for me? And Suzuki Roshi said, yes, everything changes. And then he asked for the next question from somebody. You know, we're living in rather chaotic time. And if you listen to the news, which I hope you guys don't listen all that much because they, they make everything um, hysterical almost, you know. So, yeah, to me, I, I, I um, listen to the news in, in very little moderation. I like to know what's happening, but I don't want that energy. So sometimes it's very comforting to know that things change. When things are not going well, it's good to know that everything changes and maybe there's a chance for things to come together in a different way that's more copacetic. But everything changes too when things are going well like I'm alive right now and I'm pretty healthy, knock on wood. So I want things to go on and we're constantly grasping, we're constantly trying to find stability, security, safety, something that we think we can control. But if we pay attention carefully, we can see that this tendency to grasp this tendency to want to control things, to want security, although perfectly understandable and reasonable, it's very human to want to feel secure and that the ground beneath us is stable. But it's a, um, what can I say? It's a trick. It's the trick of our egoic mind that simply wants to keep going. 
to grab onto things and to feel like there's stability. It's, I would say it's a mistake to put our money on if we're betting people, to put our money on that way of trying to do life. There is something else that we can count on that's deeper, wider, more expansive, more heartfelt. I would suggest that we mine our lives and find that deeper truth that actually we can rely on. And Zen, our practice, is constantly pointing us in that direction. I know you guys are studying Dogen and that's what he's doing all the time. He's trying to point us towards an understanding of life that includes both the mundane that's constantly changing and a deeper reality that is unchanging, unconditioned, vast, out of which the uh, heart the heart is there that that unconditioned love comes out of that depth so what are these two ways? What are these two realities that are there all the time? You know, I think when I first started teaching, the idea of dependent co-rising was very difficult for people to understand. But now it's not. People really get that everything arises depending on everything else especially young people, it's just in our face all the time. There is no me without everything else. And in fact, <laughs> you know, we, can, we definitely say there's no me there, the me that we think we are, that we want to be stable and secure and um, another good word, there is a good word. It's actually just an idea. And our practice is to look very deeply at that structure, that psychic structure that produces this sense of separation and me. But anyway, um, this sense of dependently arisen is very uh, it's not it's not hard to understand. It's a little bit more difficult to understand that the world that I see is my particular universe that will die with me. That my eyes and ears and tongue and taste and so on create a world that is particularly this Dharma, um, Dogen would say, the truth of this Dharma position is a universe that is comes out of this particular conditioned event. So both of these ways of perceiving are true all the time. So I wanted to give you, I wanted to talk to you about three um, stories, three Zen stories that I like a lot. The first one is from Matsu. Are you guys familiar with uh, our ancestors in this way? Do you, do you guys study koans at all or? I don't know. Yeah, sort of ish, maybe. 
<laughs> well, I'm going to give three, three little stories today. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll spark something in you that that'll be fun. The first one is from Master Ma. Um, but all of these stories happen during the Tang Dynasty, which is the classic time of Zen stories. A lot of these stories come from this time. And um, it's called Master Ma is Unwell. Ma was evidently this big, really big person, personage. And um, he was not feeling well. So his attendant came to him one day and said, uh, teacher, my venerable teacher, how is your health today? And Master Ma said, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. Are you familiar with this story? I don't know. Yeah, some, some of you. These two um, images are metaphors that are in the Buddha name scripture. And sunface is, uh, in this case, you know, in this way of thinking about it, is um, we can say eternity, the eternal now, the sense of um, vast emptiness is sunface. And moonface is the mundane world. And Master Ma, when he responded, he responded from both of these places. He's pointing to both of these places. So on one way, he's saying, um, I'm, I, yes, um, I'm ill, but it's perfectly okay. Everything is fine. This is the way life is. I'm sick, but it's totally acceptable. It's okay. This sense of okayness with life as it's come to be is very difficult. It's kind of a test that we can do in our own lives. You know, what is the line after which things are not okay anymore? You know, it's a really interesting place to practice right on that line. I mean, it's okay if uh, I trip and fall. Okay, that's okay. But is it okay if I lose my left arm in that tripping and falling? You know, where's the end of the okayness for us? Right? <laughs> it's an interesting question. And then the other one, moon face, is yes, I'm ill and. I could really use some chicken soup. Would you bring me some chicken soup, please? And for Master Ma, bo the, both of those realities are immediate for him. And this is the important thing, you know, to know where we're coming from all the time when we respond to a person. Am I coming from a sense of connectedness, of understanding that we are all co-arisen and that this person is as much life as I am. There is no separation there in that way we're the same. Coming from that place is a very, we have very different relationships coming from that place. than if we come from a place of no, that person is not anywhere close to what I am. I don't like that person. I don't wanna have anything to do with that person. really important to know where we're coming from and can we have a taste of both all the time I remember being with Katagiri Roshi he was a really important teacher for me and he would say he would go like this and say you know enlightenment is knowing both the world, the mundane world of uh, concepts, actually, concepts and separation, and the world beyond concepts. And for him, there was this flashing, and then eventually the flashing goes away, and you can see both at the same time. And it's good to know, you know, if we fall too much on one side, that's not true. And if we fall too much on the other side, that's not true either. So this story, this Master Ma story is pointing to both 
So this is the story when I heard that Dignat Han died, this next story uh, came to mind for me. You know, when a person dies and people um, talk about their life in the memorial, they speak about the person in the person's best way. And, you know, I think, I think that's, that's good, you know, to remember a person in their best way, because we're always trying and doing the best we can. So it's good to remember a person that way in their best way. But nobody's perfect. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh had some difficult sides to him as well. For some reason, I just wanted to say that nobody's, no teacher is perfect. We're not going after perfect. You know, we're, it's, it's really important to embrace our humanness and let ourselves accept those parts of ourselves that are difficult for us and other people. It's almost the most important thing, you know? So here's the next story. Um, I'm gonna read it for you. Dao Wu, a teacher, a really famous teacher, went to a family funeral. And when they arrived, his student tapped on the coffin and said, is this life or is this death? And Dao Wu, the teacher said, I won't say life, I won't say death. And the student said, why won't you say? Why won't you say? Because for him, it was a really important question, right? Why, teacher, won't you give me an answer? And Dawu said, I won't say, I won't say. On their way back, the student said, you should quickly say it for me or I will hit you. I don't know what kind of relationship they had, but <laughs> that's, what they, that's what the guy said, going to hit you. And Dawu said, Hit me if you will, but I won't say. So this, this is the story. So the student hit him. I don't know. <laughs> After returning to the monastery, Dewu said to his student, you should leave for a while. <laughs> I am afraid if the head monastic finds out about this, he will make trouble for you. After Dawu passed away, the student went to see Dawu's successor and told him the story and asked for guidance. The teacher said, I won't say life, I won't say death, just like Dawu said. And the student said, why won't you say it? And the teacher said, I won't say, I won't say. And at that time, the student woke up. You know, why? Why wouldn't the teacher say one or the other? It's a good, it's a really good question. Alive or dead, alive or dead. Which one is it? Or is which one is it not the right question? Where are we going to land? And are we going to know that we're landing in one place or another? And what actually is the deepest truth? Is it one or the other? I won't say, I won't say.
And then the last story that I want to, this, this story was a favorite one. And I like, it's, I can, it's a favorite of mine too. Again, it's with Nanyue. Goes like this. Nanyue went to study with the sixth ancestor, Hui Nang. And he was standing in front of Hui Nang. And Hui Nang asked him, Where are you from? And Nanyue said, I came from National Teacher's Song. The sixth ancestor, Hui Nang, said, What is it that thus comes? Or another way of that, you know, that, that question is also, who are you? For me, this is a really important question. Who am I really? I want to know. And I don't want to stop with, Tia, you know, or whatever I think about myself, I'm short, or I'm this age, or I speak this way, or I like this, or I don't like this. Who am I really? Nanyue couldn't answer. He attended Master Huenang for eight more years and worked on this question. And this is how our practice goes. When there's a question for us, if you don't understand something in something that you're reading, you take that as a question and you let it be there. You let it bubble deeply when you're sitting or when you're walking around and the universe will respond. So one day he came to the sixth ancestor and he said, now I understand it. And the sixth ancestor asked him, how do you understand it now? And then Nanyue said, to say it's like this misses the point. And the sixth ancestor said, does it depend on practice and enlightenment? Natanyue said, it's not that there is no practice in enlightenment. It's just that they cannot be defiled. And the the teacher said, just this non-defilement is what Buddhas have maintained and transmitted. You are like this. I am like this. And all the ancestors are like this. So, dead or alive, dead or alive, this or that, who am I really? What are we really? How do we live in this world of constant change? Do we live in a place that is you know, thought created only? Or do we live in this place, this mundane conceptual reality from a place that is wide and vast and deep and connected? A place where we feel we actually really belong This is our question. This is what our practice is about. How do we live in this world? From where do we respond? Are we in touch enough with the place of the heart so that we can speak to a roommate that is uh, difficult for us from a place of openness 
from a place where we don't disconnect and stay that way. I have someone really close to me in my family who is politically very different than I am. Can I stay connected with this person during, you know, these conversations where we disagree so fundamentally? Can I not make enemies? I think this is what we're being asked to do now more than ever before. You know, at my age, it's really interesting. Um, from this point of view, you kind of look back on your life and you wonder, you know, has my life been, however you want to say it to yourself, you know, has my life been enough or um, has it been a failure or, uh, you know, does it have any meaning, this time that I've been, this gift that I've been given? Our practice points us to these questions and helps us be able to, at the age that I am, you know, be able to let go in a way that feels uh, enough, you know. I don't know how I would have lived without this practice, you know, pointing to something deeper. Okay, I think I'm done. Thank you so much, Tia. Um, we have some time for questions and responses, if you're up for that. I am, my favorite part. Um, so please use the raised hand feature um, and I'll call on you and just a reminder to please be mindful of your conditioning around race and gender um, and how that might affect the way that you make space and take space. I can't find the raise hand feature, but I do have a question, if I may. Oh, hi. Go for it, Lane. Thank you. Hi, Tia. Hi. Um, I was wondering, what exactly does defilement in the last story you referred to? Is it not seeing multiple sides of a given subject, try, trying to put something in a box, uh, so to speak? Yes. Defilement. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's right. Katagiri used to talk about that all the time, that for him, defilement was seeing things in a split way. Yeah. And he encouraged us all the time. You know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with seeing things from a split way. It's not like right or wrong. It's just that it's harder to live that way. Thank you. Good to see you too. Nice to see you too. Love the hat. It's cold in here. 
like I hear know. my son tells me it was has been really cold for you guys. I mean, really cold. Yeah. You're sitting even inside. You guys are sitting with sweaters on. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Cute. And it looks like Flo has a question. Hi, Flo. Hi, Tia. Actually, Angus has a question. Angus. Why did the student hit the master? You know, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I have no idea. I mean, it seems to me with my teachers, I would I would never have done that in a million years. But um, that's what, you know, that's what the story is. I don't know. I would not have done that myself. I have no idea why I hit the master. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you point that out. It's a, it's a, it's an odd part of that story for me. Yeah. Yeah, we. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Uh -huh. uh, I was thinking of what you said. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, lovely to see you. And uh, I, I also had like a lot of people die around me and uh, recently. And um, sorry, my dog decided to, she has a question too. <laughs> anyway, but I was thinking of, of what's enough, uh, like, I'm 50 and, you know, I was telling my sister, like, if I get hit by a car tomorrow and I die, I kind of will be like, uh, in Turkish, we have a saying, like, I'll go looking behind my shoulder. Like, I haven't had the experiences I want to have yet. I haven't done what I want to do yet. And I guess, um, I mean, you mentioned this point of being this sense of coming to a terms of, with like, this is good enough. But I guess like, is it okay if I aspire to getting there at 75 or like, should I be expecting that of myself at whatever age I find myself? You know, this, um, if I don't understand quite your question, you'll help me um better okay but you know this question of not enough it's a question of the question of not enough comes from the small our small self you know suzuki roshi said clearly over and over again that life itself is enough it's mysterious enough it's miracle enough you know it's a really good practice to look to see where is it that we um, don't, let's see, how can I say this, that we don't appreciate the miracle of what we are. It's actually a miracle. It's it's inconceivable. We the Words can't reach the profundity of being able to both um, uh, experience life, sens sensate life, and also know that that's happening. But there's the part of us that, that makes us feel separate, which is delusional, but does arise, it's real. Um, that part of us keeps, uh, what can I say, that, that it feels separate, it will always um, have the next thing that we want 
it's always reaching for the next thing. It's not satisfied. And if it, if it does get satisfied, it's satisfied like, uh, you know, for, for a while, a little while usually, and then it'll come up with the next thing so that it can continue this sense of separation. There's always, there will always be something over there. So the trick, I get, I don't know if it, I didn't trick, I, that might not be a great word to use, but the, um, I can't think of a better word right now. The the um, I was going to say the trick of life. That's kind of a weird way to put it, but is to be able to um, let go of this grasping um, technique that the um, egoic structure uses to keep itself separate, to keep it to keep itself. Um, yeah, separate to keep it alive. It sep- the, it continues grasping. So it's really difficult in life to both come from a place of a deeper kind of yearning in which we feel like we want to be free and wake up and live in a way that is satisfied, right? Um while at the same time letting go of the egoic energy that keeps us grasping. That is a kind of a key to our practice, to, 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 to being able to, in the way that I was saying it at the end of this talk, to be able to die well. I mean, when we're, when we're really, you know, at the end of our life, we don't want to keep grasping. (laughs) There's no more time to grasp in, right? So if we can let go of that grasping early, the sense of completeness and satisfaction is there. Life becomes enough. That's the key to to a lot. I was going to say the whole thing, you know? Thank you. And it looks like Radha has a question as well. Hi. Hi. It's good to Hi. see. Lower my hand so I don't confuse anyone. Um, thank you so much for your talk. Um, what my question or something I'm reflecting on from uh Lisa's question and your answer is I think something that comes up for me around this sort of like sometimes I think about that egoic mind as this shapeshifter that changes with every time a desire is actualized or achieved so something I've noticed is like when I sit with the things that I wanted, I'm, I'm only 33. So I'm like a baby in this, <laughs> like in the larger scheme of things. But when I think about things I want, I desired when I was 23 and most of those things didn't happen. So I haven't like my life isn't a disaster. I haven't died because I didn't get those things. So that's one like funny thing to laugh at. But the other thing is like, um, the, that egoic mind is such a shapeshifter because when those desires, in my experience, when those desires haven't been accomplished, it's just, it feeds on whatever. Exactly. Fear is closest. Um, and so then what I'm sitting with is I off more and more, I question even who I understand myself to be because I thought I was this one thing at 23. And then I thought that I needed certain things to be that thing. And that story doesn't really make sense. And there's a decade's worth of data to show that (laughs) it's still coming up but they're new things. And I would say one thing that's complicated about this moment that maybe is different from when I was 23 is, you know, 
I had a version of Sangha then, and I definitely have this Sangha now. And yet, maybe a reflection I have is this moment feels so potently difficult because of just like physical separation and these moments of practice that can only be so, like are intimate, but like I sat in January with everyone, or excuse me, in December for Rahatsu. And you just, yeah, I, I've been feeling a lot of just heartbreak because I miss everyone. I miss that body to body connection that we were, there was so, so much excitement putting the temple together. So I guess I'm landing on like, I don't know. It's just funny. Like I, I'm noticing these things. It makes sense. And our mind is just so funny because it's, just like sticky like honey it just keeps it keeps doing these habitual things but I don't know if there's like a particular practice or yeah a particular practice or something when sitting to keep in mind a set of questions to sort of um help take care of that shape shifter a little bit You know, first of all, thank you for your question and statement. Um, and I bow to you as a 33-year-old. This um, youth is fabulous, you know, and the clarity of youth is extraordinary. And that you still have energy in, you know, in your body and a more and more understanding of life is you're in a fabulous time and, and place in your own being. And I, I wish you all, all everything, you know, I, re, it's a, I love, it's a blessing. Youth is a real blessing as well as, a, you know, delusional, but <laughs> um, yeah, there are, there are questions that you can keep with you when you're sitting. Uh, one of them might be, who is grasping? Because it's, a, I lost you. I don't know where you went to, but. I lost you in my picture thing here, but um, what? I don't know if this helps. Maybe there you are. There you are. Got you. Got you. Oh, great. Great. Good. You know, you're totally true. It is a shape shifter and it is equally, I'm, I'm calling it an it. It's a little bit weird because there's nothing there. There just are these concepts that are grasping and that are moving you around and it is, it is every single bit as intelligent as you are. It's brilliant. And it will, if one of your, um, you know, wantings or needs you think is over or gone or you get it, it will absolutely look for the next thing. It's terrific in that way. And to keep in mind that question, you know, who is wanting? See if you can find if there's anything there. And um, it's kind of like, um, I, I always think of it as like a spiral because practice, the way it goes is, you know, we do have insights and then the next one will come, right? And then there's kind of a pause and we think that nothing's happening and so on. But continuing to focus, continuing to ask these questions, we get deeper and deeper insights into the way this um, psychic structure was created by us, our particular psychic structure. To, and to, um, because there's nothing there underneath it, um, I, I'm a, my experience is, and my belief is that suffusing this with awareness is how we can go forward. So yes, when you're sitting in that silence to just um, hear yourself say, you know, like, what am I really, or who is grasping? That kind of question is very, I find helpful. And illuminating, can be very illuminating. Yeah, thanks for the question, it's a great question. Thank yes, you. Like <laughs> <laughs> I feel like giving you a big hug. <laughs> And Henry has a question as well. You spoke so beautifully about um, accessing this very deep 
and vast reality. And I feel like such a recurring theme for me since beginning practice a few years ago is just inevitably becoming enmeshed other coworkers or other people who feel like they're so diametrically opposed to me trying to get to that place that they, their spirit is, is so antagonistic and it feels like their presence in my life ends up just shrinking down the window that I can look into to, to access that deeper place. Um, and of course, having a physical Sangha was a really great balm to have a sort of alternate reality away from that social reality that could that I could, in, you know, sort of immerse into. But I'd just be really interested to hear anything you have to share around working with the inevitability of having people in our lives who feel like a an obstacle to accessing the depths of practice. Yeah, the Dalai Lama um, often says this. Um, the people we have the most difficulty with are our teachers. And Trungpa um, gave this teaching um, all the time. He would say that a bodhisattva, we're bodhisattvas. We want to wake up with everyone, right? We, we want to be in the world um, in that way. And so what he said was, whenever we feel a sense of separation, that is our play, that edge is where we practice. That edge is where we bring awareness. So one way of responding to that question is um, to suggest that when you feel yourself resentful or moving away from that relationship, because um, our life is relationship with people, with things, right? It's all about relationship. When you come to your particular edge where you're, where you're creating a separation, that's the place to look. So that's one way to respond, right? The other way to respond is, you know, um, are there practical things that you can do to either spend less time with those people or um, understanding them in a different way. You know, if sometimes if we can know a person more intimately, we um, never judge them and don't separate because we know their pain, that kind of thing. So there are two ways to respond to that question. And I think both of those ways can be effective for you. Thank you. And if we have time for one more, it looks like Julia has a question. Uh, hello, I'm actually um, Conrad, but I have a question. Uh, yeah, I, um, when you shared, you said something about like, I don't know how I would have lived without this practice. And it made me think about the decisions that you made and the choices you made in your life to to follow the call or the pull or something like that and i on one hand i have this experience of like i of feeling and understanding that i can't make the wrong decision and at the same time the understanding that my decisions matter and so I just want to, uh, uh, if you could speak to the experience of choosing or deciding, that's just something that, that came up for me as you were, as you were speaking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, you know, these are great questions. I really appreciate them. Um, the truth of it is that we really don't decide you know, we are this life dependently co-risen. And um, because of our conditioning, because of our karma, whatever, um, 
you know, because of what arises as our life in that moment, so-called outside things also, when those things meet, uh, something is going to happen, right? And so the way it seems to me it works is, is that the energy of our conditioning will tip us into one way or another. So, you know, sometimes when we're really, really present and as clear as we can be and kind of as free as we can be in that moment, there is a sense of decision-making, you know, at that moment, that one like moment. But it's also true that there is so much um, energy, let me say, energy going in a certain kind of way that probably that decision is in a sense already made. And so what what we need to um, understand and work on is no matter what the decision is, can we be okay? Can't, that, that's the whole thing about life in a way, what we were just talking about before. No matter what that decision is, can I have a deep and full life going down that road and grieve the road that perhaps we didn't take? Right? That's always going to be the case all along our life. So the question is, you know, whatever the road is that, that we ended up on, having chose it or not chose it or something else chose it or who knows, you know, how it happens. Can that be okay? Can we make a full and rich life no matter what it, no matter how we turned out? You know, that's, that's a real question. That's a real challenge. That's, that's the um, food, you know, the tasty food that we eat all the time. Yeah. It's a mystery. You know, it's a mystery and a blessing and sometimes a curse. You know, it's everything. It's a rich meal. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tia. (laughs) Um, Great to be with you. Yeah, so let's let's do the the chant. May our intention equally penetrate every Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.